if we moved as much of this functionality, traditional functionality that was handled by either the hardware or local software running on the device, if we can move that into the cloud, we could build a much better experience for the user and a much less expensive device that would be um, both appropriate and approachable for a much broader audience than typically has access to machines of this caliber. Welcome to Building for the Next Billion, the podcast that discusses the most prominent trends in software development with leading technologists from around the globe. I'm your host, Justin Byrne. We're coming at you from our podcast studio here in Andela's New York City headquarters. If you're not familiar with Andela, we build high-performing engineering teams with the most talented developers from tech hubs across Africa. Now, let's get to today's show. In this episode, I'm joined by Scott Haug, the VP of Software Engineering at Glowforge, a Seattle-based 3D laser printing company that is just insanely cool. He is tasked with the Herculean mission of building out the software for this extremely precise machine. His team relies most heavily on JavaScript, but their main app is built with Ruby on Rails. He'll tell you a little bit more about that later. Scott is huge about diversity in tech and outlines the tactics he uses to ensure that underrepresented populations are recruited and hired at Glowforge. He also gives a fascinating overview about how the machine works and how putting your arm in there to engrave a sweet design probably isn't the best idea. Hey, Scott, thanks so much for joining the show. How are you doing today? I'm great, Justin. Thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, you're welcome. So I'd like to begin the conversation discussing a little bit about your tremendously diverse professional career. I know you worked for a brief period at MySpace, which is kind of fascinating just because they were one of the first movers in the uh, social media game. So can you tell us a little bit about that? And did you ever meet uh, Tom, Mr. MySpace himself? Uh, I think my, my time at MySpace is slightly overstated. Um, simply because I was came in through a, um, a, uh, a startup acquisition. I don't even think I, if I recall, I, I, the only MySpace page I had was for uh, a test account for doing development. Uh, so no, Tom was long gone by the time I got there. As I mentioned, I was came in through a startup development. I was at a startup uh, music startup called ilike.com, and that got acquired by MySpace in 2009, I believe, late 2009. And the, uh, or maybe it was 2010. You know, I'll have to, my, my memories gets a little hazy as I get older. But at any rate, by that that point, uh, News Corp had owned MySpace. So News Corp, as most people know, is a, is a major global uh, media company. And I had been working at a tech startup. And uh, so the culture shock from going from a tech startup to a major global media company was was pretty tremendous. Um, and also, we were a satellite office. We, I was still in Seattle. So there was mostly developers there, but we were not part of the main MySpace development team. So it was, you know, it was not as exciting <laughs> as one might think. And Tom, as mentioned, was long gone. So I didn't even get to him him. him as even a perk. So almost immediately, the, the team that I had been working with at, at that startup started leaving the company. Uh, after Post-acquisition, they started finding new gigs. And I, too, looked around and was uh, looking for something, got a job offer. But the folks, uh, my, my boss at the time, convinced me to uh, stay. And I was, uh, uh, had this bright idea that if I could negotiate with them um, the ability to stay on uh, half-time for half-time pay, but full-time benefits, I could work at a, a startup in, in my off hours um, as long as they knew the startup and make sure that I wasn't, it was a conflict of interest. So that's what I did. I was able to negotiate that, and I started uh, working from home. I was maintaining an iOS app for them, which is ironic because I know very little about iOS development. But knew enough to make, keep this uh, uh, app up to date and keep the APIs fresh and adding some additional functionality in there. But otherwise, uh, Moonlight, uh, started Moonlight, out of all things, an auto insurance uh, startup at a startup incubator here in town. Um, so most of, a uh, good portion of uh, 2010 for me was, I was technically employed by MySpace, but was working from home or out of this uh, startup incubator here in Seattle. 
That's great. And so then how did you find yourself to be the CTO of SparkBuy, which I know was a big acquisition for you guys back in 2011? Yeah. So uh, that auto insurance startup that I was at, uh, after a about six months imploded when the CEO's uh, partner took a job in Chicago and, and he skipped town. So that imploded. And I, uh, given that I was at a startup incubator, there were lots of other uh, small teams around that were definitely looking for more uh, development talent to join on and help build their product. So I, I talked to a whole bunch of uh, startups at the time, some of which have now grown and are mu uh, much larger, bigger uh, companies here in Seattle. So, uh, But I was uh, quickly uh, um, introduced to Dan Shapiro as part of that. Dan was not a Techstars startup, but he had gotten investment money from uh, Andy Sack, who runs Techstars. So I, and he was looking for his essentially his first employee. He had just raised a round of funding, and he was uh, giving a demo of this prototype he had built out of uh, data that he collected and was looking for a developer. So through that, I got uh, introduced to Dan. And after a few rounds, I, I ended up becoming basically his first employee and ended up being CTO of that, uh, of that company. Man, that's wild. Well, how did the, the relationship with Google come about and how fired up were you guys when you guys got acquired in 2011? That had to be a pretty big experience for you. Yeah, it was, it was crazy because it happened so quickly. Uh, this Dan had... had um, well, by the time I joined, Dan had already had a prototype of, as I mentioned, uh, and he had a data set. The this, uh, impetus behind SparkBuy was to create a vertical search for consumer electronics. That was the like, you know, uh, five-second elevator pitch. And what he had done was Dan was had been um, wanting to buy a laptop. That was the inspiration for this whole thing. It was he had wanted a uh, laptop, but he had very specific requirements on what that laptop should be and, and its and its capabilities, its weight requirements, uh, its processor speed, how much memory it should have, what applications should it run. And surprisingly, there were a few, there wasn't any site, not even Amazon, not Newegg, not even traditional you know, uh, tech retailers that allowed for searching a broad data set to narrow down to the specific, to the level of specificity that he had wanted and, and with an interface that he thought was uh, easy enough for anyone to understand. So what, what Dan usually does in this scenario is he tries to solve the problem himself. He started uh, using the AP Amazon API, he downloaded all the current model laptops that are available for sale. He created a spreadsheet of all the data that he was interested in collecting for that. And he started outsourcing that to workers in, all around the world, researchers that would fill in the data for a, uh, a fee. And he actually would share, you know, share the same models with multiple researchers so he could correlate the accuracy of the data. Because there was no place, at least not any place we could, he could find that would provide this for him. And so once he had that data, he was able to feed that into um, actually a Silverlight demo that you know, made a really nice in a way of, of narrowing down and filtering that data set. And what he wanted to do was build a website around it. So when he introduced it to me and pitched me on the idea, I said, this sounds great. I would love to help build that. I have lots of ideas on how we could uh, scale out that backend to start collecting more data and making that uh, you know, constantly being updated, building out different types of products. We expanded TVs and he goes, uh, no, that's not what I want to hire you for. I want to hire you to build the front end. I want to hire you to build that website that makes it easy to find it. Uh, at the time, kayak.com was the you know gold standard for novel uh, web interfaces that made it easy to narrow down to a, a complicated and rich data set. I'm like, I said, actually, no thanks. This is not my cup of tea. This is not, I can do that, but it's not what I'm really good at. I'll be pretty slow and I think you'll be disappointed. So I think, you, I think you're looking for someone else. And he says, nope, I'm looking for you. I need you to build this for me. And so we went through, as I mentioned, went through a few rounds and I ended up joining. Um, and so that was uh, about September, early October of 2010. And within a month or so, we were already getting some interest from Google um, about Dan, you know, just some in uh, inquiries. We launched uh, on Black Friday, an uh, early beta release 
of the product. And by early of 2011, we were already interviewing at, at Google's Kirkland campus. And we closed the deal in May. So it was about eight months from when I joined to when I, <laughs> the company was sold and uh, sold to Google and we, we were officially Google employees. So it was one of the strangest, uh, most exciting and short-lived startup experiences in my life. Man, you guys certainly didn't waste any time. That's that's awesome. So now this brings us to Glowforge, which is you know just an incredible 3D printing mechanism. I mean, if, if anybody's listening right now and has not gone to Glowforge.com, which is G-L-O-W-F-O-R-G-E.com and watch their promotional video, stop the show, go to the website, watch it. It's incredible. I was so just like inspired. I mean, I'm not a crafter myself, but after watching that, I was like, man, I'm going to go start an Etsy business and just make some crafts and sell it with uh, the products I make with Glowforge. So you're the VP of engineering there. Um, what is your main focus at the moment? Uh, let me actually take a quick break before. You can definitely look at the promotional video, but it looks a lot like a promotional video. If you want to see the Glowforge in action and being used by people other than Dan and, and like, uh, you know, marketing, I would, I would actually recommend for searching on, on YouTube for Glowforge and Tested. Tested.com is essentially the website run by Mythbusters. Uh, or you know, associated with MythBusters, and they are big fans of the Glowforge as well. So you can actually see someone that isn't one, isn't a Glowforge employee, actually using it and doing real things. And you can see some of their criticisms as well. So if you want something a little more real, the, uh, but I love the promotional video. I'm in it uh, briefly, <laughs> but but that's but that's probably why I'm recommending the tested because I'm not in the tested ones. You don't have to see my my ugly mug. But um, yeah, what I do at Glowforge and what I'm focused on is essentially building the software team. I'm the, I'm the VP of software engineering. We actually also have a VP of hardware engineering. What I focus on is the software capabilities of the machine. And um, interestingly, the you know typical laser cutter and engravers haven't, most of the focus on, uh, on them has been um, mostly on hardware or the software has been given you know just enough to be capable. But um, we, uh, this was the inspiration that Dan Shapiro had, the CEO of Glowforge, is that if we moved as much of this functionality, traditional functionality that was handled by either the hardware or local software running on the device, if we can move that into the cloud, we could build a much better experience for the user and a much less expensive device that would be um, both uh, appropriate and approachable for a much broader audience than typically is, uh, has access to machines of this caliber. Now, so outside of the expense of the exact device, what other benefits does it provide the consumer by moving a lot of that firmware to the cloud? Absolutely. So what it can do, um, there's actually some additional hardware that we put in that traditionally doesn't show up in the uh, a laser cutter engraver um, that allows for the software to do all sorts of interesting and useful functionality. And that specifically are cameras in the device. We have camera in the lid itself that is basically fit, uh, facing down, looking at the, uh, has a view of the entire bed, uh, 12 by 20 inch bed uh, of the device. So it gives the user a full view of whatever is in the, in the Glowforge at the time. And there's also a head, or excuse me, a, a camera in the head of the laser, the head that moves around over the bed um, and you know fires the laser into the material. There's a, um, a camera right next to the laser, so we get it's essentially the same caliber camera, but roughly a five megapixel camera. But it gives it has a macro view, a macro lens rather than a fisheye lens, and it gives us a much up clo much closer uh, detailed view of what's directly underneath the laser. And between those two cameras, we can provide a host of functionality that saves the user a ton of time and effort, both in calibration and layout, and saves them from uh, tons of mistakes and allows it to make a, a much easier and safer uh, device to use overall. 
Um, so with the software, what the software is able to do in the back end is do the, the image uh, processing of all the images that are coming up, provide a, a, a view of the material so that the user can simply take their design and lay it directly onto that view of the material before the laser begins. Typically what a laser cutter will do is you uh, lay it out and then you have to do essentially what is, I, I don't know what the technical term for it, but they shine a visible laser, a, a much less power laser as a test cut that doesn't actually uh, cut the material, but it shows exactly where the laser head will travel and they can confirm that it's going to, um, it won't cut off the material. And, and because it takes uh, almost as long as a normal cut, many users skip this step and they'll end up ruining the material because they got something wrong. They'll shoot off to the side and, and, and not, do it right, uh, not do the right thing. But because we're providing that view of the material in the interface itself and they can do a, a pure you know, WYSIWYG uh, interface, they can do all that layout ahead of time. Uh, also, the head camera allows us to automatically focus the laser because we can detect how far away the material is from the laser and get the proper focus length to achieve the results they want, either cutting through if, they, if it's, a, if it's a, a pure cut or engraving at different depths depending on the type of material. Um, and so those are you know, just a couple of the niceties that those, those cameras provide that make that, uh, that interaction with the device much simpler, much easier for the user to, to engage with. So that, such that you can be done even by you know, elementary school kids. My kids, uh, I have a second grader, or, uh, is he a third grader or not? Eight, my eight-year-old, <laughs> it's been a long time, uh, it's early morning already, you know, as use the device on multiple occasions he's got a mother's day gift sitting up he's he gets so excited they come they come a couple times a month to use the device he's got a mother's day gift already made sitting at my desk that i'm supposed to be hiding for him uh so that he can he, uh it's you know still a couple weeks out he's made christmas ornaments he's all done all sorts of interesting projects on this laser cutter and whereas this would you know i wouldn't let him near a typical one because of the amount of um calibration and configuration and safety issues involved so it's so easy that uh, second or third, you know, depending, yeah, depending on, on, yeah, he's an advanced kid. He might be a third grader can, <laughs> uh, can use it. Wow. That's, that's great. I'm sure that maybe I can even figure out how to do it. So <laughs> with, so based on my understanding, you had no really real experience for writing software for laser cutting applications. So how the heck did you learn how to do that? What was that learning curve like? Well, I, and, and that's right. And similar to how I resisted joining SparkBy, uh, I resisted even more so trying to join Glowforge because I have no, I have no hardware experience, let alone uh, laser experience. So I'm like, why would why would Dan be interested again? Why, why would this is not in my wheelhouse? This is not something. I, and I'm not even. A, I like yourself. Like you, you said, I'm not even a maker uh, in that regard. I don't consider myself crafty. This is not something I engage with uh, in my free time on on the weekend. So I didn't have this implicit draw. But when I saw that, uh, and so you know, it was I. I was invited to Dan's uh, house. We you know we stayed pretty close even after Sparkby and, and would visit and hang out uh, from time to time. He invited me over at one point to see this new Chinese laser cutter he had got from uh, as part of the uh, Robot Turtles Kickstarter campaign that he had done uh, to make uh, high end game pieces. And he he was so excited after he had gotten this, he invited me over and told me to bring something to cut. Was was in the email, and I was I had no idea what to do. I'm like I don't know what you do with a laser cutter. I'm like totally befuddled. But we found this piece of marble tile after a, like a little home improvement project, and I brought over this like one foot by one foot marble tile, and we spent like a couple hours trying to figure out how to get the right settings, trying to get the uh, uh, you know a design idea we had, and like two three hours later, we finally got something really amazing out of this thing. But the experience was just dreadful, right? It was, was Windows software that was crashing. It was ha not handling fonts very well. Um, it was a bear to use. We had this you know we had to do a few different um, sample cuts off uh, on some uh, sample material that we thought would approximate it and it was just like miserable I'm like <laughs> like go have fun Dan this sounds not like anything I like not I'd be interested in or even good at but when I saw that he was 
uh, you know, so 18 months later, or you know, probably a little short than that, when he started uh, uh, recruiting me heavily, he had already started the company. He had gotten this prototype working and brought me in to see what he had built. And what I was, what I found was, yeah, there's hardware involved, and there's, you know, the the laser side, the laser side of it was still as kind of foreign to me at the time uh, as it was uh, prior to that. But what I saw he was building was a web startup. He was building a software company that happened to be launching on a very specific hardware platform, and he was solving some of the, he was trying to solve some of the most interesting software problems that I've ever seen a, a startup try to engage with. And, and the, broad, the broad scope of what he was trying to solve was kind of audacious, right? I mean, he was trying to build a, a web interface with you know, a traditional uh, you know, web software backend that was powering a laser over the internet. And so he had issues around uh, design processing. He was working with um, SVGs as the native file format. So he's trying to interpret these SVGs, which is normally a display format for your, for your computer monitor, uh, and turn that into something that looked reasonable on a laser cutter. So <clears throat> using various heuristics to, you know, how to map, you know, display uh, technology, display uh, uh, characterizations into, you know, uh, instructions for a laser cutter. He was trying to do vision, uh, computer vision processing on these images, getting the, not just, you know, seeing what was in the image, but presenting, like, as I mentioned, we have a, the camera in the lid has a fisheye lens. So it provides, we, we get a full view of the bed, but it's heavily distorted, right? We have way more information in the middle of the bed. And then, it, you know, at the edges, it, it, you know, we get, we see less and less, but we have to present that in a pure, like rectilinear view. So it looks like a 12 by 20 bed. And we have to be able to you know, if we're going to allow the user to lay design elements out on, onto that image, we have to know precisely where on that image is so that we can send it to the, send the laser head there. And, and, and note that the, the Glowforge has no sensors in the machine to know where that laser head is at any given time. We have to track that through the cameras and the stepper motors at all times. And then he's trying to, once he has got, you know, he's done the vision processing, the design processing, he has to create a motion plan for that. All this done in the cloud. And the motion plan is very much similar to like the classic computer science traveling salesman problem, where you're trying to find the most efficient route to a bunch of points. Um, but not only that, he's trying to do so essentially while taking road conditions into account. Like, uh, how is the what kind of material are um, are you dealing with? What kind of uh, what is the age of the machine? What is the what is the laser tube capabilities? What kind of power settings do you employ? So there's all sorts of really interesting problems all to going into creating this kind of beautiful output of you know what a laser cutter can do. And when I saw that, I was my even though this isn't, you know, this is not the my normal uh, type of development I, I do, or type of uh, startup I'm, I'm typically drawn to, nor is it a, a field that I have an uh, inherent interest in. You know, the audacity and scope, and the fact that it was, you know, it was essentially um, building a web uh, startup that it, you know, which I've done for most of my career, uh, really drew me to it. And what I uh, when I saw what he was had been able to achieve in such a short amount of time, it really became a you know I want I I I, could, I, I had to ask myself you know it, in two years from now am I going to kick myself for not being a part of this? And I said yeah I absolutely am. So I left I left Google was very happy at Google it was a very gr nice place to work one of the best companies in the world and I left that all to go back into startup land to work on laser cutters and I uh, you know couldn't be more excited about it. So it sounds like you really had your work cut out for you at Google. Wow. Yeah, that's, I was I was laser focused on that approach. Oh man, killer. Okay, so back to your current work. What are the programming languages you rely most heavily on to produce Glowforge products? 
Well, per, you know, personally, I do very little coding these days, which is uh, somewhat ironic because I, almost almost what I've done entirely since I've started is building a team. And I've got an amazing group of developers. And I, uh, one of the ways I've been able to build that is that we have a wide variety of technologies that they get to play with. So JavaScript is uh, is probably our most heavily used language in, the, in our product. And we've got some amazing JavaScript developers on the team. And we use that both on the front end. You know, we have a ton of uh, a browser side functionality, essentially a single page app that's driving this both for viewing the designs and doing the layout in uh, in the globe, uh, on, you know with that, those views of the images um, but we also have JavaScript on our back end for some of our services for dealing with um, WebSocket connections and variety of other, uh, pro uh, other other types of processing plus we're we're uh, doing some initial development on plugins for various applications like Adobe Illustrator which you know their uh, their plugin architecture is JavaScript based so we have a, a wide um, a good breadth of, of JavaScript functionality in our code but our main application is Ruby on Rails we've got plenty of custom C++ for doing a lot of our vision processing we've got Python um, doing some uh, some of the work around motion planning and uh, some of the other computer vision stuff. So we have a, a broad mix of technology in play. We use the, the tools that um, best suit the problem at hand. So uh, this software development company called Coding Sans, they actually just released a developer survey that stated that JavaScript is the most used coding language out there. So obviously you guys use it really heavily. Why do you think it is so popular and why do you guys use it so much? Well, JavaScript um, has been around for, you know, as part of the web. There, there are some purists that are that kind of bemoan the fact that JavaScript is so heavily tied to the web, but it, you know, it is a the language that is available on every single browser, uh, pretty much in existence. It so it's it's the lingua franca, if you will, of client side web development. But uh, a few years ago, um, you'll have to forgive me, I forget the the creator's name, but someone realized that uh, JavaScript actually made a fairly efficient server side uh, programming language. JavaScript is single threaded by default, so you take a lot of the concurrency issues that can be implicit in uh, that can be complicating in uh, other types of languages and it becomes you know the 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 paradigm of javascript development allows for you know focusing and dealing with just a single thread at a time and it, it can make for make certain types of uh, application development for uh, and specifically around web development makes that a it's a natural fit the other thing that you know for me personally that i think javascript is is really nice is that their object model and the language itself is adaptable to various types of paradigms. And so it has a, you know, it has an object model so you can do traditional object-oriented development, but a lot of people take a very functional programming uh, approach to JavaScript so that you have, uh, there's a, for people that are you're trained in computer science, it's much more of a kind of a mathematical approach to how to think about applications, how they think about state, state management, and essentially the ma uh, maintainability of the code. So um, in, in some respects, JavaScript is the most popular functional programming language in existence and that excuse me that draws a lot of uh, interest from uh, from a, a wide variety of developers interesting and going back to some of the logistics behind the printer so are there any materials you cannot feed into the printer maybe some materials that would produce unwanted effects and what would happen if you like put your arm in there you know yeah. Would it make a cool design on your arm or would it cut it right off? I do not recommend it. Well, our to answer the first question about what materials are, Glowforge, the Glowforge printer has a 12 by 20 bed. So typically your, your materials are, are, are constrained, at least on the basic model, constrained to those dimensions. Also, it are, the Z-axis is uh, limited to, I think, a half-inch uh, focal length. So typically uh, what we say is we can cut or engrave anything up to quarter-inch thick. But we've had some of our, um, uh, except for uh, metal, glass, and stone, we, 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 we can't cut through uh, those items, but we can engrave and etch them. 
Um, we've had some of our customers work with uh, materials up uh, as much as a half inch thick. They brought a half inch piece of oak <laughs> I saw, um, and was able to cut through it quite easily. So, but we, we advertise up to a quarter inch thick uh, for that material. Now there are certain types of material that will not work in any laser cutter or, you know, or will not work well. Um, so for example, vinyl, um, right, so like, like you would have on a, a vinyl record. Um, will produce, I believe, chlorine gas when cut with any laser cutter. So we do, we absolutely do not recommend you use our, uh, our uh, Glowforge or any laser cutter, but, uh, but with vinyl. But we work with leathers and uh, acrylics, uh, hardwoods. Um, we can we've engraved food items, including you know we've uh, cut out engraved chocolate, pancakes, sushi rolls, all manner of stuff. So it, uh, that's one of the beauties of a laser cutter and engraver is that it works with such a wide variety of materials, unlike a, t a traditional 3D printer which you know, it typically is limited to uh, uh, one or just a, a very small set of materials that it, you know, those cartridges can actually extrude. Um, as far as um, can you put your body parts into Glowforge, absolutely not. The Glowforge has, the, the, uh, the basic model has um, safety precautions so that the laser will not fire if the lid is open. Um, and so uh, this is what allows the Glowforge to be classified as a class one laser device, the same safety rating as a Blu-ray player because it will, the laser will only fire if the, the, uh, the lid is closed. So, but we do sell also a pro model um, which has pass-through slots in the front and the back, so you can um, slide much bigger pieces of material in. Those pass-throughs are still about a quarter inch uh, high, so it, it, most people would not be able to get any body parts in there, but it, it does change the safety rating to a class four laser. Um, and that, you know, there, uh, and so there, uh, if you, if you uh, Google class four laser, you'll see the safety precautions that are recommended uh, for that class, uh, class of device. But it's class four because it now has, you know, a pass-through slot that you can get uh, material through, in through um, while the uh, laser is firing. Okay, got it. So I'm not going to put my arm and do a cool little design on that. That's, that's no go. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. <laughs> Very interesting. And I know that you mentioned earlier this awesome engineering team that you've helped build out, and they're just creating really great pro products for you right now at Glowforge. How big is your engineering team? And I know that one of the, your main priorities is is gathering a pretty diverse uh, core of individuals. So how do you go about recruiting such diverse talent? Yeah, so our engineering team is, depending on you know the way uh, where you uh, factor it, is about 17 people right now, um, and it's a little over 40% uh, women. Sadly, we would you know we we're we're trying to have that ratio be even higher. But yeah, one of our one of our core tenets, uh, core values at the company is is diversity in, in our employee base. Um, and so we work very hard to build up our candidate pool uh, across all disciplines, not not just software engineering to reach out to people that would otherwise be underrepresented in technology companies. Um, and we've had great successes there, but we've also, you know, we, you know, we're not perfect in that regard, but that's one of the things we, we absolutely focus on. So one of the things we do is we focus, you know, one of the, the major complaints you'll hear from big technology, technology companies like Facebook and Google is that, you know, they often blame their, their low, uh, the fact that they have uh, su such small, uh, you know, they're underrepresented for, re you know, their underrepresented population is so small is that the pipeline is poor, right? They usually blame it on universities. But we work hard to fill that candidate pool and we work hard to create an environment where people want to come and interview here. So um, our job, for example, one small thing we do is it, um, every job description we put up goes through a, uh, a service called Text.io. Uh, Text.io is the, is the name of the company. And they can basically evaluate the text to uh, provide uh, a score for how um, friendly and welcoming that job description is to both women and men. Um, and we make sure that every one of our job descriptions has a 100% rating for that um, before it goes out. We've tailored our interview process to so that it is um, 
It is welcoming and friendly to uh, and has uh, employees t techniques that are that reduce bias in terms of of our hiring uh, hiring practices. So we we don't employ whiteboard coding, which is can be stressful for anyone. I hate whiteboard coding when I'm interviewing, uh, both on you know uh, giving the interview and, and getting in, uh, being interviewed with whiteboard coding. So we do project based interviews where we we bring people when we, uh, people come into the office, they work on a single problem throughout the day with several of our engineers. Um, they can use their own laptops, they have internet access, um, they can go out and use any tools that they want or use their own environment. Uh, typically, we allow them to choose even what language they want. We're you know, fairly ag language agnostic about that. They work on a, a specific problem ahead of time, but it is, you know, they have a, the decision of uh, making a decision about what features what they want to add or how to uh, approach it in different ways. So there's, uh, there are definitely wrong ways to do it. We definitely you know, make hire, hiring decisions based off these projects, but it is very much so, uh, guided uh, in, in many ways by the candidate and, and their interaction with our engineers because one of the things we found is that it's talent doesn't discriminate right but and so what we what we focus on as much on the the candidates and ability to work with other engineers as much as it is their um, uh, skills at um, actually writing code writing you know in, in many ways writing code is a skill that can be taught but working with others can be a challenge if you if you don't have that skill coming into it it's difficult to learn that on the job especially at a at a small startup like ours so we focus heavily on you know interaction capabilities and you know how how they treat others and how they you know their their ability to communicate and uh, brainstorm ideas uh, so there's just a couple of the of the way oh one of the other <laughs> we I, we put money where our mouth is too we um, our referral bonuses are only for you know we, we provide referral bonuses but only if the uh, the candidate obviously is hired but they self-identify as an underrepresented person so if you have a uh, if you know someone that is, you know, typically rep, uh, consider themselves underrepresented in tech and you think they'd be good here, if you um, refer them to us and they end up getting hired, you will get, I, th I think our referral bonus is currently $5,000. Not sure I have to look that up. But yeah, that uh, that's another, uh, you know, way in which we uh, try to build that candidate pool as much as possible with a diverse audience. And one of the reasons we do that is because we're trying to build a product that is going to reach as wide an audience as possible. Right now, um, especially given that we're uh, dealing with a, a crowdfunded campaign, early, we have a lot of early adopters, they're typically makers in that regard, but we think that this, uh, that because of the ease of use of this device and the, you know, actually just how uh, easy it is to use both in terms of software, but the hardware itself is attractive. It's, it's a large device, but it, it's not your typical, you know, folded sheet metal maker device. Um, we think that device uh, and, you know, devices that will follow it are gonna, we wanna have broad appeal in the consumer electronics market, not just the, in the maker space. So we, in order to reach a diverse audience, we feel like our company has to represent the customers that way through through its diversity. And we, uh, we work hard to achieve that. Well, it sounds like a pretty fantastic place to work. Um, I'm assuming that you guys are, are hiring right now. And actually, the, the survey results that I was talking about earlier from Coding Sands actually said that the biggest challenge an engineering team faces is hiring is hiring top quality talent. So have you guys had any trouble doing that? And are you guys hiring? And if so, how can the listeners uh, kind of uh, figure that out? Yeah, we are absolutely hiring for all manner of positions. If you go to um, glowforge.com slash jobs, you'll see a sampling of the jobs you're hiring for. But we're and that's not even fully represented. Like one of the things we're looking for right now that isn't on uh, this, that page, we're looking for a software architect. We're looking for um, low, uh, junior developers and we're looking for very senior developers as well, the whole broad spectrum. We love people that have JavaScript experience, but if you've been doing just Java or C++, but you're really excited about this space, you know, that is knowing or not knowing JavaScript is uh, is not a prerequisite to, uh, to joining. But yeah, hiring is, hiring is hard. Hiring, especially in Seattle, is, is particularly challenging. Seattle has... 
actually a, a more job openings for software developers, uh, at least this was true a few months ago, I'd have to sync back with my recruiter, more job positions were available uh, for software developers in Seattle than there were in the Bay Area, in part because our population is much smaller, but you know there is a ton of uh, both major companies and small startups in that are here in Seattle. And Google has a presence, Facebook has a presence. Um, there's a ton of uh, work uh, across, you know, in the Seattle area for uh, VR, for AR, so that hiring computer vision specialists can be particularly challenging. We, we faced a, a long time getting, before we got our, our first uh, specialist there. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, hiring has always been hard. The software developers have, in my, throughout my almost 20 year career has been always been in demand and fire, especially hiring top talent uh, can always be challenging. And that's another reason why we open, we, we work hard to make our hiring pool so diverse is because as I mentioned, talent doesn't discriminate. We, there are top developers from all sorts of backgrounds, from all sorts of uh, you know races and genders and whatnot. And we do not want, we want to make this place an, as inviting and exciting to work at as, as possible for everyone. Well, that's great. Um, when I was prepping for this interview, I actually read a very interesting article on GeekWire about uh, the majority of the Glowforge office getting stuck in an elevator yeah. so I just wanted to ask is that was that a good team bonding experience like the next time I'm in uh, the elevator with a bunch of Andela employees should I pull the button or was that kind of a terrifying experience we were actually visiting the office that we're in we were we had outgrown our previous office and this is just under a year ago and we're looking at a new space um, just a, a few blocks up the road um, and we were invited to um, go see the basement. And the basement was just one flight down, but for some reason, a bunch of us piled in the elevator and hit the button, and it got it went down, and then it went past just past the floor and hit the bottom. Nobody was hurt, but it got stuck there. Um, and we couldn't get the, we were not stuck between floors. The basement was just on the other side, but we couldn't get out. Um, and so we were in that elevator for about 45 minutes. And I think the, the joke at the time was that, you know, a year from now, uh, most of the company would, would recall being on that elevator. But there was only about 11 of us, I think. It was, but it was still fairly crowded. So within 45 minutes, you know, there was enough humidity in the air that people were like drawing on the metal within the elevator. Um, and but we all, a lot of us had our cell phones, so we immediately started tweeting about it. Um, and so uh, it got uh, picked up pretty quickly that uh, Glowforge um, was a good elevator. I put on oh I put on some music. I'm not going to say the song anymore. I'm not sure I quite remember it, but uh, I started playing some music to try to keep everyone up. There are some people in that were in that elevator that do have that's one of their phobias <laughs> is getting stuck. So we, we kind of came together and tried to keep it light. And within 45 minutes, you know, after hitting the emergency bell and calling some folks, and we got the fire company to show up. But yeah, it was a it was a bun experience. We actually got some people claim that it was a marketing stunt that we pulled. <laughs> and you know, Dan's a pretty smart guy but i'm not sure he's that smart to think of getting into getting stuck in an elevator is to get publicity for glowforge yeah oh man that sounds both equal parts awesome and terrifying all right so how can everybody listening right now stay up to date with you and all your work and also all the awesome work that that glowforge is doing I highly recommend uh, going to glowforge.com. We have blog posts there. We have you can uh, links to uh, several of our amazing videos. If you go to our, um, I'm not that interesting a person, but if you go to glowforge uh, slash about us, you can see all the amazing folks that are on our team. There's several links off to their blogs and and websites. We have the, the team is full of you know fascinating individuals. Some of whom have you know uh, done TED talks where they've started their own companies. People that have worked on um, the uh, the uh, Mars and lunar missions. It's just a it's just a fascinating group of individuals. I have my the most. If you wanted to see a little bit more about me, my, I have a, my Twitter. Uh, handle is S-H-A-U-G, uh, but that's uh, 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 the updates there lately are few and far between. 
Awesome. All right. Well, hey, thanks so much for joining the show. This was a lot of fun, and I'm going to take the stairs next time I, I leave my building. Yeah, at least in this building, I, I'd recommend it. Uh, good, good talking to you, Justin. Thanks for having me on.